Hannah's Suitcase by Deborah Cowley. Worn and musty, it travelled from Auschwitz to Japan, bearing a message of hope. It was a brisk October day in 1944 when 13-year-old Hannah Brady climbed down from her bunk in the Kinderheim barracks in Theresienstadt, the concentration camp in Czechoslovakia, where she had spent more than two years. There had been rumours that the Nazis were stepping up the deportation of children from camps, so each morning she would run down the hall to check the lists of those ordered to leave on the next train east. Heart-pounding, she ran her finger down the columns of names. Suddenly, she spotted her own. No one would tell her where the trains were going, but as her mind spun with confusion, she was comforted by one thought. She might meet up with her beloved 16-year-old brother, George, who had left on the same train four weeks earlier. That night, she opened her brown leather suitcase and packed a few of her favourite drawings and her clothes. She scrubbed her face, washed her hair and tied it into a ponytail. The next morning, with a group of Jewish friends, she was herded into a boxcar. All day and into the night, the train chugged slowly east, past barren countryside. There was no food or water on board, and no toilet. In the middle of the night on October 23, 1944, after crossing the border into Poland, the train screeched to a halt, the doors opened, and a guard ordered the girls out of the boxcar into the darkness. Hannah had arrived in Auschwitz the most notorious of the Nazi concentration camps. Just 13 years earlier, on May 16, 1931, Hannah had been born in the Czech village of Nové Mesto. She and George grew up in a warm and loving family, headed by their father, Karel, who owned the town's general store, and their mother, Marketa, who helped serve the customers. Hannah enjoyed a blissful life, playing with George, her two cats, and much-loved wolfhound, Silver. Summers were filled with picnics in the countryside, winters with sleigh rides and cross-country ski trips in the surrounding hills. One thing, however, set the Brady family apart. They were Jewish, one of only three Jewish families in the town. Except for George having briefly taken some weekly studies in their religion, the Brady children felt no different from their friends, and no one seemed to treat them any differently. On March 15, 1939, their idyllic existence was shattered. Hitler's armies marched into Czechoslovakia and imposed strict rules for Jews. They could leave their houses only at certain hours, shop only at specified times. They had to wear a yellow cloth star pinned to their coats. On it was the word Jude, Jew. The Brady's radio, their only lifeline to the world's news, was confiscated. Hannah and George, then only eight and eleven, were not allowed to visit the cinema, the playground or any sports events. And they were forbidden from attending school, so their mother hired tutors to teach them at home. In the face of such harassment, the two children developed a special bond, but worse was to come. In March 1941, the Gestapo arrested their mother. The family learned she was sent to Ravensbrück, a woman's concentration camp in Germany. Soon after, their father was arrested. His Jewish acquaintance had dared to challenge the restrictions, refused to cut out the star, and instead wore the whole cloth pinned to his coat. This one act prompted the Nazi officer to arrest all the Jewish men in the town. Karel Brady hugged his children, told them to be brave, and was gone. Devastated, Hannah and George went to live with Uncle Ludwig, 
a Christian who had married Aunt Hedda, their father's sister. Each took some clothes in a suitcase. Hannah chose her favourite, a large brown one with a polka dot lining. Before the Nazis confiscated his parents' apartment, George retrieved all the family photos and hid them in his uncle's house. The Nazis' campaign of terror continued. On May 14, 1942, the Gestapo ordered Hannah and George to leave for a deportation centre 50 kilometres away. There they boarded a train for Theresienstad, a former garrison with huge red brick fortifications. At the outbreak of war, it had been transformed by the Nazis into a transit camp for 50,000 prisoners, many of them children, whose final destination would be Auschwitz. George was sent to the boys' barracks and worked with a plumber who taught him the trade. Hannah went to another building called Kinderheim L410, a half kilometre away. Food was scarce, and they slept in three-tiered bunks in cold barracks, crawling with bugs and rats. Hannah longed to see her brother, but only after several weeks was she allowed to meet him for two cherished hours a week. Hannah always brought some of her bread ration to share with George, who she felt needed it more than she did. As the months passed, more and more Jews were crowded into the camp. Food rations dwindled, diseases spread. By September 1944, the Nazis saw they were losing the war, so they speeded up the boxcar deportations to Auschwitz. One day, Hannah received the news she dreaded most. George's name appeared on the deportation list. Before he left, he tried to comfort her. He told her he had promised himself he would bring her safely home again. I will not break that promise, he assured her. George Brady spent five nightmare months in Auschwitz, enduring long hours of back-breaking labour on a starvation diet and returning each day to the sight of people being led to the gas chambers. Miraculously, he survived. When Auschwitz was liberated in January 1945, he was freed, an emaciated waif of 17. Upon his release, George travelled on foot and by train, finally reaching home in May 1945. There he found Uncle Ludwig's family, and from them he learnt the harrowing truth. His mother and father had died in Auschwitz in 1942. There was no news of Hannah. For months, George searched for his sister. He made inquiries in Prague, but no one could help. He asked every Auschwitz survivor he met whether they had seen her. He knew she had gone to Auschwitz and deep down suspected she hadn't survived. But he kept hoping. One day, while he was walking along a street in Prague, a teenaged girl stopped him. She had been a friend of Hannah's in Theresienstadt and recognised George. It was she who brought him the dreaded news. Hannah had been killed in the gas chambers of Auschwitz the day after she arrived. In 1951, seeking a new life, George emigrated to Toronto. A year later, he joined up with another Holocaust survivor and they set up a successful plumbing business. He married, became the father of three sons and a daughter, but he never forgot his sister. He had recurring nightmares about her and was forever haunted by the fact that he had not been able to keep his promise. A half-century later, in August 2000, George Brady, now 72, fetched the morning's mail from the doorstep of his North Toronto home. Tucked among a raft of bills was a large brown envelope covered with Japanese stamps. I don't know anybody in Japan, he thought, as he tore open the envelope. Inside, he found a long letter from a young Japanese woman, Fumiko Ishioka. 
Concerned about the escalation of bullying and violence among Japanese schoolchildren, Fumiko and a group of friends decided that kids could learn important lessons from the Holocaust to think about the value of life, of other religions and cultures, and to appreciate differences in people. Fumiko had known little of the Holocaust before delving into the project. Growing up in Japan, she had never met any Jews, and her parents never talked about the war. Her high school history text devoted three lines to the subject. Until recently, people in Japan didn't even know the word Holocaust, she says. We read Anne Frank's diary of a young girl at school, but we really didn't think about why she was killed. It was a visit to the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., and her first meeting with Holocaust survivors that struck her to the quick. More than the stories they told, I was impressed by what they are now, by their hope, their belief in life and love. That meeting really prompted me to act. Fumiko and her friends rented a room in downtown Tokyo, collected books and photo panels, and in October 1998 opened the Children's Holocaust Education Resource Centre. But Fumiko wasn't satisfied with the lifeless displays. She wanted to bring the Holocaust alive with graphic artefacts directly related to its horror. After a trip to Israel, working as an interpreter at a conference, Fumiko decided to return home via Europe and visit the Holocaust Museum in Auschwitz. I asked the curator for a shoe and a suitcase belonging to a child killed in the gas chambers. I thought such belongings would show how these Jewish children were allowed only one suitcase when they were deported and help our children understand something of the pathos of their journey. Several weeks later, a large box arrived at the centre. Inside, Fumiko found a child's sock and shoe, a child's sweater, a can of Zyklon B poison gas, and an old brown suitcase with a polka dot lining. When I opened it, there was a musty smell of old leather. On the top, written in white paint, was the name Hannah Brady, and underneath was her date of birth, May 16, 1931, and the word Wesenkind, German for orphan. The children were thrilled with the suitcase. They wrote poems and stories about it. They drew pictures of it. They displayed it in a glass case for visitors to see. But all the while they pestered Fumiko. Who was Hannah Brady? What did she look like? What had her life been like? I, too, was very curious about this little girl, says Fumiko. I had to find the answers. She wrote to the Holocaust Museums in Israel and in Washington, asking for any information about Hannah Brady. They had no clues. She wrote again to Auschwitz, and after a long delay, they told her they had found a list indicating that Hannah had been transported to Auschwitz from Theresienstadt. I knew that the little girls in Theresienstadt drew many pictures, says Fumiko, so I thought that Hannah, who was then 11 or 12, might have been one of them. Fumiko contacted the Czech Terezin Ghetto Museum to see if they had any of Hannah's artwork. They did, and I was so excited when they sent me copies of five of her beautiful drawings, each with her name handwritten in the top corner. Now I had to keep looking for her. Following another translating job, this time in Europe, Fumiko went to visit the Terezin Museum in person. She arrived in Prague for a one-day stopover, then boarded a bus to Terezin. There, by good fortune, she met Ludmila Chlatkova, the cooperative head of the museum's education department. With Ludmila's help, Fumiko combed through long lists of transport registers, yellowing sheets of loose-leaf paper showing details of over 90,000 prisoners 
shipped to Auschwitz and elsewhere. Suddenly, there was her name, Hannah Brady, says Fumiko, smiling at the memory. A little check beside her name showed that she had died, but next to it I noticed another Brady, a George Brady who was three years older, and it did not have a check. Could this be Hannah's older brother, she wondered? Ludmilla paused in thought. They could be siblings. Brady is not a common name. They were close in age and came from the same town, she said. Did she know where George lived? Ludmilla sifted through more lists and suddenly saw the name of Kurt Kotuk, a man she believed had shared a bunk with George Brady. With only a few hours left before her departure, Fumiko hopped on the bus back to Prague and raced to the Prague Jewish Museum. There, a curator made a few phone calls. Yes, Kotuk was alive and living in Prague. The curator finally reached Kotuk, who agreed to meet Fumiko. He told me that indeed he knew George, that he was alive and living in Toronto. He gave me George's address and left. Fumiko returned to Japan and wrote immediately to George Brady, asking for information about Hannah. I was nervous about writing. I was afraid he might be annoyed for reminding him of her. She needn't have worried. George Brady was so moved by Fumiko's letter that he not only wrote back, giving details about his sister and their idyllic life in Nove Mesto, but he also sent photos of his pretty blonde sister from the box he had saved. Fumiko screamed when she received that letter. My hands were shaking as I read about Hannah and her family. At last I knew what sort of girl she was in her happy days. Working long hours, she mounted the photos and drawings and compiled the stories about Hannah into a booklet, which the children illustrated. They also built a stand to display their most important artefact, Hannah's suitcase. After weeks of preparation, the exhibition opened, Hannah's suitcase. It had already travelled to 25 venues around Japan, been to Canada, and been seen by more than 20,000 people. Fumiko wants to make Hannah and her suitcase a symbol for the death of an unknown child, as well as life. In February 2001, George Brady, then aged 73, and his 17-year-old daughter, Lara Hannah, accepted an invitation to visit Fumiko in Tokyo. When the Bradys arrived at the museum, the children rushed to shower them with paper flowers and a thousand paper cranes, a symbol of peace. Then Fumiko took George's arm and led him to the display area. There, for the first time in over half a century, he saw his sister's suitcase with her name, Hannah Brady, written across the top in bold white letters. It moved him to tears. Before leaving, George told the children his sister had wanted to be a teacher. And now, thanks to Fumiko and you, Hannah is living her dream. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Thank you.